Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. Josh and I are taking this week to prep for next week's top 10 roundtable shows. We've got the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips. He's back, as usual, joining us for that, along with the now Chicago-based critic Mariah E. Gates. Really excited to have Mariah join us for the first time for these end-of-year shows. Josh and I did get to a screening of Avatar The Way of Water, and we couldn't wait to share that conversation with you. Josh was a big Avatar defender back in 2009. Me, not so much. You'll have to listen to see if either of us had a change of heart when it comes to the sequel. We also wanted to take this time to thank everyone for another year of listening to the show. 2023 will be year 18 for Film Spotting. We're going to kick off that year with a live show in New York City. If you are in New York City or in the area, we would love to have you join us. More information about that January 14th wrap party, as we like to call it, is available at filmspotting.net slash events. Filmspotting.net slash events will be at the Bell House in Brooklyn. This year, we also started a new membership platform that we're really proud of, not on Patreon, but on supporting cast. Members get access to a monthly bonus show, event pre-sales and discounts, and other exclusive opportunities. The new platform also made it possible for us to make the entire show archive available in one place for the first time ever. Yes, you can get what amounts to actually over 1,100 episodes when you throw in all the little bonuses and fixes. Access to that is one of the perks of membership. You could, for example, go back to 2009 and hear our review of the original Avatar. Because it is year-end and we're a listener-supported show, we did also want to let you know with the holidays fast approaching that gift memberships are available. If you're a current member and you want to give the gift of membership to a friend or someone in your family, or you're not currently a member and you want to give that gift of membership, just go to filmspottingfamily.com. That's filmspottingfamily.com. You'll see a tab for gifts right at the top of the page. You can pick whatever membership tier you'd like, pay for it, have it delivered to that person as a gift whenever you choose. We do have three different tiers of membership, including an advisory board level that gives you the chance to join me, Josh, producer Sam, for a quarterly board meeting where 
actual show decisions get made. You get to weigh in on future marathons. You get an early look at our film spotting madness list and get to help shape those lineups and so much more. If you do have a film spotting or just a film fan in your life that you are looking to get a gift for, maybe you're raising or you're the aunt and uncle to a budding cinephile, a very young cinephile. Our friends at Cinephile, a card game, have put out my first movie, Volume 1. It's an all-new series of picture books that offer a colorful, kid-friendly look at your favorite genres and eras of film. The set is really fantastic. There are three installments in this first series, my first giallo horror, my first French New Wave, and my first film noir. So you get to take kids in a very fun and entertaining way from stylish Italian slashers to renegade French auteurs to hard-boiled detectives. It's a cinematic journey through the wildest corners of film history for cinephiles and little cinephiles alike. Edgar Wright's a fan. David Lowry's a fan. Even Quentin Tarantino has a set of my first movie, Volume 1. And we've got an exclusive offer for film spotting listeners. I may have bought a set myself for one of the young cinephiles in my life. Just go to lilcinephile.com. That's L-I-L cinephile.com. Use the code film spotting before December 25th and you'll get 20% off. That's code filmspotting at lilcinephile.com to get an essential gift for cinephiles of all ages. My first movie, volume one. Again, thanks so much to everyone for listening to Film Spotting this year. A couple of big, great episodes in store for you looking back on the year that was in cinema. And we wish you and your families the best for the holidays and the new year. And now, Avatar, The Way of Water. Treat them as our brothers and sisters. Teach them our ways. Keep up, Forrest boy. If you want to live here, you have to ride. Let's do it. Just breathe. Breathe. What should definitely qualify as a still processing review, Avatar, The Way of Water, the follow-up to 2009's Avatar from director James Cameron. We are at this point, Josh, about 18 hours, if my math is right, 18 hours removed from our viewing of the film, maybe even a little bit less than that. I'm guessing, unless you were a really busy boy this morning or had insomnia and stayed up frantically typing, you have not constructed your written review of this film. And I certainly just have a bunch of random notes and observations that came to me that I was voice transcribing as I was driving home from the theater. Okay. So you weren't, yeah, I didn't notice you doing a lot of scribbling during maybe the 3D makes that hard. Maybe those glasses didn't even bring a pen. (laughs) (laughs) How did you do with the 3D glasses in your scribbling? Well, um, it's about more interesting to me than the movie. Uh Yeah, here we go. (laughs) It's about the same result. I would say, although, okay, I have not put on a pair of 3D glasses to read my notes. I, I was just going to say. Maybe try that. <laughs> that would be amazing. If I should you could try only... that just normally because usually my notes are yeah. unintelligible anyway. You could only read them clearly if you had the glasses on. Why not? I'm guessing a lot of listeners, at least longtime listeners, are probably a little bit more curious 
to hear what I think of Avatar The Way of Water because they may recall that back in 2009, I was not a fan. In fact, I was quite a detractor of the original Avatar, as was my then co-host, Maddie Robinson. So people might want to hear whether or not I've come to the light. I've had a reversal in terms of my feelings about James Cameron and this world of Pandora. But I can't wait to hear what you thought of it, Josh, because as someone who has admitted over the years, you didn't get to talk about it in detail on the show, but you've admitted that you were a big fan. And I know you rewatched the original Avatar to get ready for Avatar The Way of Water. I'm dying to know if Cameron has managed to top the original in your estimation. Are you going to continue to be an Avatar acolyte or... Are you going to join me on the dark side? Are you now a naysayer of the Navi? <laughs> Was that a character I missed? The naysayer of the Navi? Possibly. Um, yeah. Was a fan of Avatar. Am a fan of Avatar. After that recent revisit, there are issues, obviously, we could discuss, but still think it's a singular movie achievement. Avatar, The Way of Water... I apologize in advance, Adam. I know you probably worry this is going to besmirch Film Spotting's reputation. Rust assured, only I, not you, should lose any cinephile cred for this. But yes, I'm recommending Avatar The Way of Water. And here's oh, why. I thought you were going a different direction nope. with that setup. You pulled a switcheroo on us. I switched you. All right. This is what I want my cinema ecosystem to be. I want it to be similar to the teeming planet of Pandora, full of all types of life forms. Of course, I want something erudite like tar. Yes, we all want and need tar. I want something smart and political and fun like Glass Onion. I want something unassuming but emotional like After Sun. But I also want big, weird blockbuster extravaganzas like Avatar The Way of Water, especially when they're as imaginatively envisioned like this. That's what I was hoping for. Again, there are issues with the first film. They're probably magnified here, I would say. This is a far lesser film. If the original, I don't know if it made it on my top 10 list of that year, but it was definitely in consideration. This is nowhere near that. Way of Water is nowhere near that. But what hmm. Avatar did so well, I think this movie does well in interestingly new ways. So it's not for everybody, but if you are a sucker for world building, I would say if you're curious about the state of special effects technology and how it can be used really well, even if you're just conflicted about the work of James Cameron, let alone a fan of some of his other stuff, even if you're always intrigued or provoked by it, you've got to see this. And if if those categories strike you as familiar, I think you'll probably enjoy it as well. You've got to see this. That pretty much sums it up. It's just a cudgel to beat us all down. You got to go. It's James Cameron. He spent 13 years making it, spent untold hundreds of millions of dollars. There's going to be two more. You can't avoid it. I well, think, aren't there three more? I don't know. I think yeah, there might be see, three more. Probably. It doesn't matter. I'm not going back for round three. You're out. The original Avatar. Yeah. The original Avatar, I just looked it up again, 82% positive reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. So despite whatever is in the zeitgeist as we look back on Avatar, there's a lot of haters out there. The majority of critics overwhelmingly liked the movie to some degree. And I'm surprised to hear what you said, Josh, only because it was unavoidable 
as we saw this on Tuesday night, December 6th, some New York critics, maybe some L.A. critics, too, had all gotten to see it just earlier in the day. So on Twitter, if you were on it at all, all these responses were breaking at the time we were walking into the theater and then some more after that. And with few exceptions, it was not only high, high praise, but it was people saying, no, he did it. He improved on the original. Now, really? I feel like I feel like this was coming from at least a few people I saw, David Ehrlich being one of them, who wasn't dying to see a new avatar, as he put it. He wasn't clamoring for it. You know, he probably wasn't that big of a fan of the first one. And that's that's something different between the two of you. You were someone who really liked Avatar. But before I really give more of my thoughts, can I get a little more from you then on what you think this movie doesn't pull off that the first Avatar did? What it doesn't pull off that the first Avatar did, um, mm-hmm. I think... I mean, yeah, I, the, the, this is what's holding me back, so we could jump to that if you want. I have other things I can praise about the film, but I I think for me, it doesn't manage the tension. And this is a Cameron thing in general. It doesn't manage the tension I felt in the first one between uh, militarism and wonderment at the natural world. I really appreciated that in the first Avatar and the way it echoed similar things in Cameron's previous movies, in including maybe my on some days my favorite film of his, The Abyss, I think is a very interesting exploration of this theme. Here we can maybe get into a little bit of the plot for Way of Water. And it's tied to Sam Worthington's character, Jake Sully. Nobody really cares about Jake Sully. I, I don't know why someone hasn't told James Cameron that. As someone who really likes Avatar... I mean, no one tells him anything. The movie made, however much it made, he can do whatever he wants, right? That's where we're at. But there was nothing about that character on my first watch that compelled me. I will say on my recent revisit, the factor that um, he uses a wheelchair because of being injured in war, and that's where why he finds himself on Pandora in the first film— That was actually a very distinctive thing I underrated the first time I watched it because he spends a lot of time using that wheelchair in Avatar, and especially as we think about better representation for people with disabilities, I was struck by the amount of the importance of that was to Jake Sully's character. It was probably the most interesting thing about him in retrospect. Obviously, that's a whole different conversation we can have, but that's all gone now because at the end of Avatar, he has chosen to give himself over his physical body, actually, to transfer his being to become one of the Navi. So he's left behind his human form. And going into this, I thought, this is going to be very interesting. Uh, Is it going to be Cameron further exploring a different way out of this tension. And what I saw as the main narrative thread here is that not that this warrior has found, realized that maybe there's a better way to live and the tension would be resolved, but he's almost, he's almost still invading the culture of the Navi in this movie rather than subsuming himself into the Navi because, and this goes back to no one cares about Jake Sully because Cameron can't quit this guy. He can't quit these hard-ass military guys. And in all of his movies, in most of his movies, there's a tension where he feels conflicted about that. And here we see Jake Sully has finally taken this turn at the end of the first film. And he's 
running this family of four when we first meet him. He and Natiri, played by Zoe Saldana, they have four kids. He's running them like a squadron. He's First of all, he's wearing military gear still, even though he is a Navi. He's running his family like a squadron, telling the kids, Sully's fall in. He makes his kids call him sir. There's a weird thing also where the girls get called only baby girl, even though they're like teenagers. And so there's weird gender stuff going on. I don't know. I that's that's what really disappointed me, I will say, because overall I'm favorable on the film. I think it has a lot of other really good stuff going on. But that was the disappointment to me is that one of the interesting tensions at play in Avatar is still there in The Way of Water. We can talk about what other ways it plays out, but it was a very it was very much a disappointment that still sticking with this Sully character, he almost regressed into something that was just kind of like even more generic, if that was possible. I don't remember the first film well enough to make the connection or direct comparisons that you did, but no, I don't think he manages that tension at all. And you see that Cameron, despite all the time he devotes to the spectacle of the natural world here, there's no doubt that that's there. There's also a sense with all of those things you described and the Stephen Lang character and also the time that's devoted to all of the warfare and battling that for me, it's as if he just can't wait to get to all of that. He still can't wait to let the bullets rain down on people. And I find that boring. And I also think there's a tension that was an aspect of the first film that I didn't like that here is maybe not as important, but it speaks to, Maybe the lack of sophistication I would I would hope for in these cases, or at least the lack of thought that goes into the script and the world building. I was glad, actually, that the Stephen Lane character here in this film, the reincarnation of him, touched on this, used this against Jake Sully. He said one of the reasons he's hunting him down and he's for sure going to kill him is that he not only sold his people out, but he killed a bunch of fellow Marines Good men. Now, Stephen Lang's character, Korich or whatever his name is, he's not one of those good men. He's as blatantly an evil character as the movies can give us, which is another problem, I think, with both films. But those were people he knew. They were other soldiers like him. When we're watching the film, I understand that I'm watching Avatar from the perspective of the natives and I'm rooting for them and I'm rooting for Jake. But watching it as a viewer, you still can't help but go, okay, just a little bit ago, though, Jake was on this side of it. And now the movie's asking us to root for their deaths and destruction. It's easy when it's a character as bad as Stephen Lang. It's harder when it's just a Marine. And I don't think Cameron has completely figured that out. No, and if, if as I said, you know, and we read the first film a little differently, I feel like he was interested in exploring that tension. Um, here it seems like he's not, or he's not being honest about, you know, where he really lands. And I give, I think the tell, the giveaway here is a later sequence where there's this massive whale hunting scene. Let's just say that, not getting into all the details, but the bad guys are essentially hunting the whales. And... We are absolutely, as you said, on the side of the reef people who live in community with the whales. We know what's right and we know what's wrong here. 
What is the movie excited about? It's, it's excited, thrilling, isn't it? It's excited about yeah. the the bad guys subs yep. and the bad guys harpoons and the bad guys crab bots That's or right. whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. And we get it, right? Cameron is the guy who went sub diving himself, right? Yep, all the so, toys. So you get it, and and I'm not saying that those are in and of themselves bad things. That that technology and an interest in technology is a bad thing. But again, it's one of those moments where you realize this is what the movie really believes in, or as you said, is, you know, is really, really excited about. So we're in agreement there. Can I now defend the movie or, or do you have more you want to complain about? <laughs> Can I complain more Go first? Go ahead. Okay. I mean, yeah, my, my bottom line on the way of water, it's overwritten when it isn't underwritten. It's overwrought. It's overblown. I'm over it. I, I am over it. I just watching this, I understand why some people can get really excited and they can appreciate the visual mastery that is exhibited on screen, how it's something we've never seen before. I get all that, though. I don't know how you say that and don't also consider how there are times where it feels like we all got left at our in-laws house and the TV's stuck on motion smoothing or whatever yeah. it's called, right? We'll, I mean, we'll talk about it, it's that. there. It's that high frame rate yep. that happens. And sometimes you don't notice it at all. So there's an inconsistency to it. And sometimes you just can't help but notice it. And I'm not sure why three-ish hours of that, no matter how disparate it might be, I don't know why that's something I'm excited to see. I I wasn't. And I think it comes back to the same issue I had largely with the first one. And it is the screenplay. And I don't mean the dialogue. I was very quick to explain that then, though I think that there are absolutely some clunkers here, not as many as there were in Avatar for me, but screenplay is about other things in addition to dialogue. It's about character development. It's largely about structure. It's, of course, about these different thematic ideas that the movie may or may not want to explore. And it was just so funny to be watching this film thinking he has hung all of this on such a flimsy, conventional, told over and over again story. Where is one real fresh idea amidst all this fresh technical wizardry? It feels like the ultimate kind of boomer movie to me, where you've got a filmmaker who not only is he still playing with all of his toys, he's then also really drawing on all of his old films. I know that can be something that's a positive for some people to see that, but I'm watching him take parts of the abyss, parts of Titanic and put them together on screen here. Of course, parts of the first avatar. I was even thinking today, is there some connection to the Terminator films? And there might actually be in terms of the idea of protecting your family, putting an importance on that, the promise of youth and the next generation, the, attempts at world building and dragging this out into multiple (laughs) installments of a series that's all on display there. But to me, that just felt a little bit tired more than anything. And these depictions of the battles, these depictions of warriors of Marines, it's as if he's still looking at everything through this lens of Vietnam and insurgencies and what we saw in aliens. He's, depicting these characters the exact same way, like he transported them out of that film into this film. And you're right as well, Josh, about the the gender dynamic here, the 
use of that baby girl line, Zoe Saldana, you said she was in this film. Is she really? She doesn't really she's have good. a whole she's, lot she's to do. She's really good. So, we'll, But she doesn't have enough to do. No, that's She just that's doesn't. True. And the movie also, it's not about this, clearly, but I think you still notice it. I did that the movie has it both ways where she's a warrior, a fierce warrior, sometimes more excited or more interested in getting into battle than Jake is, and she wants to protect her family. She's also the character who's still very much stuck in the hut doing the cooking, and it seems like the picking up around the place. So even the gender dynamics here all seem a little bit out of whack and archetypal, old school. The The most interesting parts of this film, potentially, are things that are all just glossed over to set up plot points and to set up the basic framework of the story. It's ideas like <laughs> bringing back Stephen Lang's character, bringing him back from the dead in a Navi body and the technology behind that, the thinking behind that, how that would mess with a character's head. For the movie, it's no, we just need to do this because it, it sets up that he's going to go back into the forest and he's going to fight and it's about revenge. It doesn't really want to talk about that. Even this idea that the movie begins with, Josh, about happiness. Okay, wait a minute. Let me, st so, let me stop you there because so you've thrown a number of things. And let me just say one thing is having to do with the Stephen Lang character, Quaritch. I don't think this is necessarily a strength. I think it is more of just an intriguing idea. But they do give him a son to actually explore those very ideas that you're talking about. I don't know that this works because the son is a little bit of an odd character, Spider, played by Jack Champion. It's very convoluted if you haven't seen the film, but basically he was too young when Stephen Lang left or was killed in the first movie. He was a baby, this character. And so he's grown up now. He couldn't leave the planet. And so he's grown up among the Navi. And so this is a character entirely built for exploring those questions you were talking about. Now, yes. how successful it is, but it's it's not as, I mean, you're you're not characterizing it quite fairly by saying they just have Lang's character show up to fight again. No. Okay, but let me let me clarify one thing. First of all, how successful it is is still a big question and an important sure, one. And sure. the moments of internal conflict. But it's a new conflict, idea. It's a fresh idea. Okay, but the moments of internal conflict that we get are few and far between, and the few that we do get show up at opportune times when the script needs that to happen to bail a character out or to add some tension to that scene to make something else happen. You don't so think that it way, was? In that way, they feel to me, Josh, not actual ideas that the filmmaker wants to explore. They're ideas that are there for the sake of convenience. You didn't think it was interesting what eventually happens with Quaritch, specifically no. related to Spider, because no. especially that choice, because it's setting that, up future films. That's the other thing I felt okay. blatantly aware of. Okay, but it can do more than one thing. I thought I thought that choice was directly related to some of these provocative questions about having this character be resurrected in a certain way and what that mat what that means for family lineage. And I think there are a lot of interesting questions about lineage and things going on here. I don't know that those are the strengths of this film. So I'm not going to, no. you know, I'm not going to fight you too hard, but I think they're there. I think they're fresh ideas and I think they work a little bit better than, than maybe what you're describing. Yeah. Well, I, I do want to say I am also including in that, not just the family tension and that dynamic with his son character. I mean, just the idea away from that, take out the spider character completely. 
imagine if this movie wanted to explore in a meaningful way what kind of havoc that would wreak on a character to find out that you've been implanted with somebody's memories and you've now been sent on this mission but what does that really what does that really mean what well, does I think that, that's what why that spider is there to to no. provoke those okay. questions I, I i'm saying i think the idea itself is potent enough that even without spider it's it's maybe it's from a different film. Clearly, Cameron didn't care to go down that right. sci-fi aspect this, of it. But that would have been that still supports for me my point, my overall point that the most provocative ideas that the film could have explored, the movie decides not to. No, it decides to explore it through the character of Spider, which you didn't find compelling. That that's okay. different. So e- either way, problematic. Yeah, I mean, me. Spider Spider has other issues besides the one we're quibbling about. All right, I interrupted you, so that was there was something else you were going to. Well, I was um, just going to say, uh, again, a different film, but a provocative idea. The whole opening is all about happiness. It's all about this idea of finding peace. And what we know about movies like The New World, movies that deal with this idea of characters who have escaped the structure and rigidity of society, and they've explored these native lands and they've found connections to the characters and mother nature and all those things. There's a tension there and that eventually that does have to end. And you have to wonder just as human nature goes, no matter how much you think that's the peace that you want and the happiness that you want, if you actually find it and every day, you know, it's the talking head song. Heaven is a place where nothing ever happens. You know, if you really find it, you find that peace is that, is that really fulfilling? Are we as human beings even capable of existing within a conflict-free place like that? Here, that is something that we could have seen explored in Jake Sully's character over the course of the film. But the movie only uses that idea of happiness to set up the fact that the bad guys are coming back. And in order to protect what they have, they got to fight the bad guys. Well, what what I definitely did not need is Jake Sully's midlife crisis. So I'm glad it did not go down don't go down that route. All right. So when you were describing, you know, the connections to Cameron's earlier films, mm-hmm. essentially, you know, that this is auteurism, right? And I I just want to make the case for for something that could be called blockbuster auteurism. All right. We have basic auteurism, we have vulgar auteurism. And this is blockbuster auteurism. These are this is a massive movie that bears the distinct fingerprints of a single author, for better or for worse. This is one of the reasons I'm a defender of the Star Wars prequels. I know that's probably not helping my case, but they are pure George Lucas, even more so than the original films. And, and again, for better or for worse, the original films are better films. Yes, but. The prequels are fascinating because they are so purely George Lucas. Only George Lucas would have made some of those decisions, given us some of those visions, given us some of those images, whether or not they all work. I think of the Wachowskis in this manner as well. You look at the Matrix films, um, but also something like Jupiter Ascending or Cloud Atlas. And for the record, was not a fan of Jupiter Ascending, but still you can recognize the auteurist touches going on there. These are bonkers visions complete commitment to it and here's the difference and this gets to like why these are so weird because they're supported by vast resources these are not auteurs working with tiny budgets and they have to scrape something together which always leads to interesting works 
but they're very different types of works. And you use the phrase word world building, and I think I just value that much more in TV in movies, probably. It's, you know, here, just as astonishing as those floating Hallelujah Mountains in the first film is this village of these the reef people. It's nestled among these enormous roots of this mangrove tree that's over the water, the canvas paths stretching between the branches so they can get from one home to the next. I just love being awash in that stuff when it's done this well. And the underwater scenes here are incredible. So bright, so stuffed with detail, so immersive. This is the sort of stuff I just I just can't say, yeah, it looks nice, but can you believe what that character said 10 minutes ago? I just can't gloss over it when it's done this well. I think the moment for me, you know, beyond all the endless creatures we see, is at one point some characters hide in like a giant air bladder, you know, part of a seaweed forest where there, there are air bladders that help help to stay stay uh, afloat. And the characters kind of duck under there. They're still underwater, but they find this safe little pocket of air. And it's just this beautifully inventive, imaginative reinterpretation of our natural world in this universe. And I just love that stuff. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I think it's amazing. There's also these phosphorant jellyfish that they wear on their backs, helps them breathe in some way. A burial scene amidst a field of anemone. I mean, it's I'm watching some of this aghast. Now, let me support something you complained about because I am with you on the frame rate. That was a huge disappointment to me. I didn't know going in that this is what we were going to get. I didn't know we were going to get 3D. And I'm not a 3D fan in general. I do think the original Avatar, it's probably one of the two times I've admitted that 3D adds something to the experience. The other is Henry Selleck's stop motion Coraline for me. I do think it works, the frame rate here for the underwater scenes and the 3D works. I didn't notice it there. As you said, it's more jarring in some places than others. But yes, man, there are some moments where the 48 frames per second made it very hobbity. I always think of The Hobbit when it comes to this. You're right about the motion smoothing. Also, video game cutscenes came to mind. And I only know those from like television commercials I see while watching the NBA. But I felt like that's what I was watching at times. And it did take me out of the movie. So I... I did take a little time to figure out what the heck was going on here. And I just wanted to share this for people who are curious. This I found in Variety, and they were quoting Cameron at the Busan International Film Festival about the frame rate. This is what he said. Can theaters support variable frame rate switching back and forth within the movie between 24 frames per second, what we're used to, and 48 frames per second? The answer is no. They just run it at 48 frames per second for way of water. That's what you have to do or you can do for the 3D. And then Cameron said, in any part of the scene that we want to be 24 frames per second, we just double the frames. And so they actually show the same frame twice, but the viewer doesn't see it that way. So that's why we had that experience of it shifting in and out. It's not to the movie service. I think the 3D would have been fine. I think the 48 frames per second thing is really a mistake. And I don't know that we can even say that's generational now because I don't think there's a generation of moviegoers that want to see things at that rate. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. You said you can't focus on what a character said when you're looking at the immersiveness of this world and how beautiful it all is and the attention to detail. I, I get that. Of course, that that isn't a fair summation of 
my issue with this film storytelling, though that said, my favorite bad line in the film or bad moment of dialogue is a character saying, I can't believe I'm chained up again. And it's almost like the movie's throwing in the towel and admitting they're trying to make a joke out of something that in the moment I as a viewer was like, yeah, I can't believe it either. I really can't believe we're back here just going in these same circles. This is so, so tedious. But my my bigger point, you know, or my counter to you is that I can't gloss over bad storytelling or what I see as bad storytelling just because of those eye popping visuals. I'm just not that starved, I guess, for spectacle. And everything you're saying about auteurism, blockbuster auteurism, maybe this is a new kind. Maybe what I'm saying I don't want is what Cameron's giving us, and I need to open my eyes to it and be more appreciative of it. But my challenge to you is that cribbing major set pieces from your previous work and the simplest characterizations of things— does not equate to personality, which is what auteurism no, is it's really the weird about. Stuff. It's the weird stuff that I think of when I use that term. So, like, what is going on with Grace, Grace's avatar somehow giving birth to a child that they then adopt? I mean, that's what the sort is of stuff going that's, on? Right. That's, that's the stuff that can only happen in... A vision like this. Mm. <laughs> and I don't know. I love seeing, I mean, I don't, again, we have to say this all the time. We're generally fans of Marvel. I, and I'm not saying this is what you want, but I don't want like a 40th Marvel film. When you look at the formula there to say nothing of the underwater scenes in Wakanda forever, which we both bemoaned, like give me something like this any day that I think is weird and unique in an auteurist manner, not just cribbing previous sequences, and good. And for me, it's good as well. Okay. For you, it's not. And yeah, and that's, it, that's, that's, good. that's the difference. I mean, there's <laughs> been plenty of times over the course of this show together where I've praised movies for being bonkers and weird. I, I usually like that, too. We're definitely seeing this one differently. The world of Pandora has a different effect on you, Josh, than it does me. Definitely does. Quick word about Zoe Saldana, because it's both to her credit and also... You know, just a question about how the technology works here. She is so much better than almost every other performance here, every other character. Hmm. Certainly Sam Worthington's Jake Sully. Again, don't want to dump on Worthington. It's hard to tell what, why something is working and why it isn't. What's in the writing, what's in the animation, whatever. It's working with Natiri. I think it's working. I think she registers so much more strongly as an individual with personality traits Despite being, yes, you're right, kind of pushed into a weird gender role that she never really had in the first movie, so it's strange why it's happening now. Um, it's the way she moves. It's also her vocal register. It's all of the the facial distinctions, the way her character's ears will, will mm -hmm. turn back in certain readings or certain moments. Um, the way she mixes anger and grief in, again, her movements, but also her vocalizations – I don't know what, you know, it's some magical formula that I don't understand because I don't know the technology. How much is the animator's work? How much is Saldana's work? But I think she's really, really good here. She's the only one, let's put it this way. I think we both like Andy Serkis's work quite a bit in the Planet of the Apes films, right? Motion capture work, 
Saldana's the only one here working on that level, I, I would argue. And so I want to call that out both as as um, praise for her and the animators working on her character. And also just a question, like, why isn't why aren't there more performances like that in here as there are in the Apes films? OK, promise. Final final question. What was the stranger casting for you? Jermaine Clement as a dour marine biologist or Edie Falco as the like supreme military commander of this planet? That's a good question. Both surprises. I'd say Clement was the bigger surprise, but that's because the whole character felt bizarre to me. It didn't really make any sense within the context of this entire film. Edie Falco is a really powerful actress and, of course, can embody really any kind of character you want. So if she needs to be a general who's tough and can actually seem a little bit intimidating up against Stephen Lang, I can totally buy that with Edie Falco. I don't really know what Jemaine Clement's character was doing. here. <laughs> there are moments where he's a marine biologist, and yet uh, I'll try not to get into too many details here. He's a marine biologist, I think he says, but he has no problem doing the job he's doing, which is not preserving the life of aquatic animals. And it's another case where we get maybe just a few little close-ups of him reacting, but not really giving us a whole lot. I, I don't know no. what those moments were really meant to suggest, Josh. I'm with you on Clement, not because he's less surprising to be in the movie, but I would have not expected him to be in the movie in this way, where he's, right. he's really not bringing anything or apparently meant to. So, okay. Hey, we agree on that. I'm a warrior like you. I'm supposed to fight. Protect the people. Let's get it done. Avatar The Way of Water opens this weekend in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Filmspotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, the show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Next week... It is the top 10 films of 2022 with Josh and myself, along with Michael Phillips and Mariah Gates. Film Spotting is listener supported. To join the Film Spotting family for as little as five bucks a month, just go to filmspottingfamily.com. If you'd like to support the show in another way, please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We love the reviews, and so many new ones have come in over the past couple of weeks. Thank you to everyone who has done that. We want to thank in particular B Dynamite, Jeep CT, Millie 1202, Irose, Noah the Whale, The Only Liston, M Sukant, Silvio 99, Nicholas, I'm not sure about your last name, Principi, Principi, you've been listening for a while, you need to set us straight on that. Colton Butcher, Dan Kilber, all shared very kind comments about film spotting on Apple Podcasts. If you don't have the time for that, though it only take you, you know, 30 to 60 seconds, go ahead and just head to Apple Podcasts and click the five-star rating. All of that will help us reach new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener-supported.
Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.